0: Judges in corporate pockets. Entrenched structural racism. Rubber
1: stamping bad decisions. Legitimizing police lies. The American court system has always been flawed, but never more than now. The judiciary, lawyers, and elected officials have sworn an oath to defend the Constitution, yet they're silent about dark money capturing the courts. We won't be. You're listening to May It Displease the Court.
0: Welcome back, everyone, to another... And final of the season episode of May It Displease the Court. A podcast about how deeply and totally screwed up the court system has always been. But especially under the Trump administration that's on its way out. Thank you, Georgia. Thank you, Pennsylvania. You beautiful patriots. And thank you, Mary. Mary's my co-host, for those of you that don't know. Uh, Because Mary wanted to start the podcast. This was not a me thing. This was a Mary thing. Because of all the sketchy shit that administration was up to. And I, for one... Um, think that she got the administration thrown out through spreading the good word. So thank you very much. And also introduce yourself for the new people.
1: Hi, I'm Mary. I am an attorney. I was a trial attorney. Now I do appellate law. And I have kids who are home and may interrupt or scream, but I'm hoping that they don't.
0: Yes. And don't let her lawyer uh, her lawyer talk, uh, not let you think that she's as excited and wanting to swear as I am. It's just that's how Mary rolls. And then my name is Lee, and I'm an academic and rhetorician because I study, you know, rhetoric, persuasion, whatever. And I'm an academic in uh, upstate New York, and I'm not one of the in-the-pockets academics. I'm one of the actual academics. And if you'd like to know no- more about that, you can go listen to one of our earlier episodes. And don't forget that we are on Twitter, at Court Pod, And we would like to officially welcome you to the season one finale of May It Displease the Court. I can't even believe it. It's been awesome, and we get to end with a victory. So on this episode, we're going to wrap up some loose ends, look at where the election stands in the courts right now, major upcoming battles, uh, this thing called shadow dockets, yet that's yet another mind blower from Mary that I have uh, had no idea about till she got involved, and the crucial fight to rebalance the courts. And then also a little bit about what we've got in store for next season. Yes, so Biden and Harris may have
1: won uh, the presidency, and we are th- Thrilled beyond belief about that. Actually, relief I think is is the number one uh, emotion here. But the court takeover by Trump and McConnell is still going to be a huge problem. Regardless, that is going to be the the GOP, the Republicans' biggest card to play, and you can bet that they're going to be playing that hand uh, as often as they can. And a Democratic administration is not going to be enough to counteract that. uh, Just a Democratic uh, presidential uh, administration and, and the House. Again, not enough. We need the Senate and we need to rebalance the courts if we're going to shore up democracy and to get the courts on track to be fair for everybody. All right. So where does this uh, election put us? Where is this election um You've heard a lot probably about Trump taking all of these legal actions in state court and in federal court. Uh, They've lost every single one, and there isn't any real reason to believe that they're going to win anything. I mean, these lawsuits are, and I've read uh, some of the papers, not for all of them, but for a lot of them. And I follow Mark Elias on Twitter, who is the Democratic um, legal head of uh, the you know, the, the fight to have all of the votes counted and to protect the election. And they are utter garbage. I mean, really embarrassing, like truly. And I say this as an attorney, like embarrassingly bad lawsuits. I mean, there just isn't, it's like when you're in court, you know, and you have a client is really unreasonable and they want you to say just the most ridiculous shit and you're, it's embarrassing. You don't want to do it, but you have to, because you have to zealously advocate your, for your client. So you kind of sometimes be like, well, your Honor, my client would like me to say this. I mean, they're that bad. They're they don't have facts to support their allegations. They have hearsay upon hearsay. You know, one was like a Trump elector said that they or a Trump uh, poll watcher said that they saw a bunch of ballots in a room, and then that poll the Trump poll watcher left, and then they went back to that room later, and the ballots weren't there okay <laughs> like you, there's nothing there's there's nothing there so you know if you if you look into you know the lawsuits and if you f- at all follow legal twitter which i don't know why you would um i do um nobody no none of the academics none of the election law experts think that these cases are going to go anywhere and even trump's own aides have conceded that they don't really have any legal theories. So anybody out there who's really saying that there's widespread fraud or anything like that, there just are no facts to support that. So I think that we're in a really good place. It just hasn't finished. Trump and the Republicans set up a scenario to have the election get challenged in the court with these late arriving ballots. And they, you know, Screwed up the the postal system. They put into joy to slow down the mail, and that did successfully um, get a bunch of ballots uh, to not make it in time. Which is, in my opinion, total bullshit because I don't think they should win for that. And uh, the NAACP and another uh, defense fund that is Cheryl and I so I'm blanking on the name of her organization. They had sued to. St- to you know, stop all of this. And that was in federal court with Judge Sullivan. And Judge Sullivan issued an order on election day saying that the post office needed to sweep their, in these particular battleground areas where the mail had slowed down, they need to sweep them and make sure the ballots get delivered on time. And the post office under DeJoy just refused to comply with that federal order, which is mind-blowingly outrageous. And I hope that Uh, Judge Sullivan throws DeJoy in the jail for contempt, for contempt of court for not following his court order. He has the power to do that and he should use it in my opinion. So they had, again, they had this scenario where these late arriving ballots, would they be counted? And that was going to be where they wanted to run to the courts and have the courts say that they shouldn't count these late arriving ballots. But that's not what's going on here. The actual lawsuits that just that scenario did not materialize. So what they tried to set up a scenario it didn't materialize. What we're talking about now are ballots that were received by election day and the votes that were cast on election day. That's what these lawsuits are about, and it just there just is no cause of action. So you know it, it it's not over, but it's over. So the late arriving ballots just aren't going to be enough to shift the election. So. I don't really think we need to stress about the current lawsuits that are there.
0: Well, that's very reassuring because I was really uh, gearing up to to watch this. Like they were sending all these text messages from like the Biden Harris, and they were like, "You have to donate a hundred dollars now to our legal defense fund because he's, he's going to fight us on this." And the more I watched, I was like, "I actually think you'll be fine," which is really nice because we all saw what happened when the Gore when the Gore Bush Florida case happened. I mean, they were ready; they were to Kavanaugh's decision. He was teed up. Oh well. Yep, he was. Well, sorry, Kavanaugh. As per, unfortunately, this time I'll key up against someone else's uh, consent. You're not going to be able to do anything about it. <laughs> all right. So, um, looking ahead, though, like right, like a, a victory in the win. That's just the start. It's just the start of a very long road to get things back into order. So, if we think about some of the things that are going to be coming up, where that six-three Supreme Court that the Republicans have put in place are really going to screw some of the most important civil rights, uh, workers' rights, legislation that the Dems have put in place. We just picked a couple of highlights. So first of all is obviously Roe v. Wade, right? overturning that landmark case uh, from 1973 is going to become obviously a a huge issue with Barrett on the court. Um, She signed in 2006 a statement opposing, quote, abortion on demand, which is, ugh. Talk about talk about rhetorical signifiers and calling for the end of Roe v. Wade. Now, during the Senate confirmation, Barrett refused to say her views on Roe v. Wade. Right. But it's pretty obvious where this is going. And with uh, several abortion rights cases in the pipeline, the Supreme Court could give states more freedom to tighten abortion restrictions in the future if any of those cases were to reach the Supreme Court. There's actually 16 cases, to be exact. Oh, there's actually 16 cases. Okay, God, you're such a lawyer. Yes, okay, excuse me. With 16 abortion rights cases in the pipeline. And now, of course, it's actually, I mean, for me, in some cases, it's actually hard to imagine the Supreme Court putting, I mean, states, some of these states, like, could not get tighter. But, you know, be careful what you wish for. So then the second one, Mary, do you want to say anything else about the Roe v. Wade before I move on to arbitration? Well, I mean, so if Roe v.
1: Wade is overturned, then it's going to bounce to the states in order to uh, the state. We think it'll bounce to the states. So in places like New York and I think California and other places, they've said that there's a constitutional state right to abortion. But in Louisiana, this this past election, they voted the exact opposite, that there is not a state right uh, under Louisiana constitution. So if they get rid of Roe v. Wade in Louisiana, there will be zero access to abortion. abortion.
0: Yeah, that's true. And it, and, and you, know, you could make the argument there's zero access now, but there's not, right? There's a big difference between a little bit and zero. So that's going to be, oh, that's going to be bad. All right. Arbitration agreements. So Mary, will you explain what arbitration is? And then I will explain the court coming up. The court case coming up.
1: So arbitration is like going to court, but it's not court. You have an arbiter, which is, you know, somebody that is typically a professional arbiter and they're like a judge, but they're not a judge. I mean, they do the same function, um, but it's not, it doesn't bind on anybody else. And it is in lieu of, so instead of going to court, you go to an arbitrator and the, and you put your case in front of the arbitrator, you put your Uh, your evidence, you know, your law in, and the arbitrator makes a decision and the decision is binding on the parties. So it's, it's forcible by the parties. Now, the problem with that is that the arbitrators are chosen, typically chosen by the, uh, by the powerful entity there that like the, by the company or, you know, if, so if you agree to an arbitration agreement, you are agreeing to go for an arbitrator that is chosen by typically the most powerful, um, person, you know, entity uh, going forward. So there's lots of problems with arbitration. You really are uh, waiving incredible rights that you have as a citizen by agreeing to arbitration. But typically, you kind of have to, you know, if you want to go forward with something they sort of make you agree to an arbitration. um, Well, they're not literally making you, but they're basically literally making you um, agree to an arbitrator. So this is something worthy of a whole episode uh, next semester, really diving into what this means.
0: Yeah, but um, in any case, it's really this isn't even up for debate because they already heard this case last year and the Supreme Court held that arbitrators, not courts, should decide whether an arbitration agreement applies to a dispute, even when the language of the agreement says that a particular claim isn't covered by the contract. And that case is Henry Schein Inc. versus Archer and White Sales Inc., so in any case, they've really already decided, but it's coming back to the court to settle a few undecided questions, like um, like specific contexts in which this might be true, or does an agreement that carves out certain claims but sort of generally delegates questions of arbitrability to an arbitrator, does that require um, that the arbitrator you know be chosen over the court? It's like a whole thing. So. They might even tighten that even further, and again, as Mary suggested, really kind of undermine any recourse that a consumer or a, a, a defrauded business partner has to get any kind of redress, right? Because again, if the arbitrator is picked by power, how the hell do you have any how, are you, how on earth are you going to get any any redress, right? Um, Speaking of which, we have another case coming up uh, also about defrauding customers, AAMG Capital Management versus FTC Federal Trade Commission, which is about the ability for people who have been defrauded by corporations and fraudulent financial institutions to get restitution from the Federal Trade Commission. And so, Mary, this is this one's kind of one you brought to my attention. Do you want to say more about that? Well, they're not getting it from the Federal Trade Commission. It's the Federal Trade Commission is acting on their
1: behalf to Mm -hmm. get that restitution from the fraudulent financial institution or the corporation. And what's really worrisome about this is that Barrett heard a very similar case when she was on the appeals court at the Seventh Circuit, and she ruled to strip the FTC to take away the FTC's power, same power. So she's made it very clear that she has great contempt for Congress protecting consumers. Um, And the, you know, the argument is, is that consumers getting restitution for being defrauded, uh, is somehow, uh, imposes unwarranted costs and uncertainty that hurts business. I mean, I have a way for for that, for businesses and institute fraud and, um, financial institutions to be, to have certainty. Don't
0: defraud consumers. Uh, it's super easy. Uh, so, yep. Yep. And then the last one we have coming up, one that really butters my muffins, I mean Roe v. Wade does too, um, is same-sex or unmarried adoption and fostering. And so this case, which is Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, is whether or not a Catholic social services organization can deny adoption to same-sex couples or unmarried couples. And I'm obviously pissed about this because I would like to uh, adopt or foster some kids. I'm not married, and I would be awesome at it. So the idea that someone would say no to me is very frustrating. So Mary, that case was just heard. They just heard oral arguments. Where do you think that that's going to go?
1: I'm not. Uh, I'm not very hopeful for this case because it's a, it's a case that the court has been the the obviously the the Roberts court, not the not the liberals on it, but the Roberts court have been. Teeing up, getting ready, signaling that they are willing to expand the uh, ability for religious organizations. And they have a very broad definition. This clearly is a religious organization, but Hobby Lobby, they consider that to be, you know, have religious protections. Okay. So they're willing to go super broad in what they consider to be religious, Mm -hmm. that, you know, using their religion in order to discriminate. So, You know, I think that this is the area that they're going to try to chip away um, at uh, civil rights. Uh, And again, you know, I worked um, in child protective. I, you know, I had, you know, children that were placed with same-sex couples. They are um, and unmarried foster parents. They were absolute gold star uh, parents, really, just... And I think because they have felt alone and have felt adversity and they have felt ostracized and marginalized in their own life so they understand what foster children feel you know to a degree they can empathize and they really went above it. I mean it the idea of excluding these types of parents for some religious belief is just it who's really getting hurt children and it's disgusting.
0: Yeah. Well, let's not pretend like fucking Catholics care about children. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that, but, and you are Catholic. I met some Catholics.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. And I'm not like, yeah. Anyway. Um, no, I, I think it's disgusting yeah. and I don't, and I don't uh, support it in any way.
0: And so those are some of the highlights of like the big, you know, kind of, you know, spotlight things that are going to be coming up that just give you a little taste of uh, how bad things are going to get with a six, three Republican court. But then there's also this thing called a shadow docket, for the Supreme Court that I didn't even know about, and so uh, Mary's going to teach us all a little lesson about shadow dockets today.
1: And let's be real, I didn't know about it either, uh, because it it doesn't officially exist. So you know, what is a shadow docket? Well, it is it is the the Supreme Court accepting uh, cases from litigants that are seeking emergency relief from the Supreme Court in the middle of ongoing litigation. So what I do, uh, right now is I'm an appellate attorney. And so after a a trial has been completed, I get the case. If, if, if a party, um, appeals, then I get the case if the person is indigent and I review everything. And I try to see if there is a legal basis to say something below, uh, you know, wasn't done properly, was, was done illegally, you know, like that. And you file an appeal, you write a brief and then the appeals court um, rules on that. And then perhaps there's another level of appeal. And then after that, then it could rise up to maybe a federal level, possibly get to the Supreme Court. And let's be honest, this process takes years, years. The shadow docket gives litigants a shortcut. So if a lower court issues a ruling, even a preliminary ruling that doesn't decide the full case, the losing side can ask the Supreme Court to order an emergency stay, or in normal English, a stop or a pause before that ruling goes into effect. It freezes the lower court's ruling, it strips it of their force, and the litigation continues. It preserves the status quo as it existed before the lower court's ruling. And emergency stays can favor litigants who hope to run out the clock. So recent cases on the uh, the Supreme Court's shadow docket have been issued in emergency rulings on coronavirus policies, immigration restrictions, capital punishment, uh, access to abortion, the US Census, and procedures for the upcoming election. Now, it's supposed to be super hard, really, really difficult to get an emergency stay in a case. Period. It's supposed to be really difficult. Litigants have to show that they would suffer, quote, irreparable harm if the lower court's rulings were left in place. It's a difficult standard. It's supposed to be difficult because it's meant to limit the circumstances where the court's immediate intervention is needed. And it's supposed to prevent, you know, extraordinary consequences. Now, the Trump administration has sought emergency relief, meaning staying the lower court's ruling or lifting the lower court stay on 36 separate occasions, including 14 alone during the October 2019 term. This is extremely different than the previous 16 years under Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama, where the government sought such relief eight times or once every other year. And Judge uh, Justice uh, Sotomayor has argued that the court, the Supreme Court, has lowered the bar for litigants to receive emergency stays on the shadow docket. Now, because it's an emergency posture, the request and the justices have to act very quickly. It's on a shorter than normal timeline. There's just written briefs, no oral argument. The justices then quickly rule on the request. And sometimes there's absolutely no uh, written response to it at all. They just kind of issue an order uh, with little or no reasoning. Um it's often not even clear what justices were in the majority, what justices are in the dissent if there's a dissent. So it's, you know, it's a way to kind of hide behind what's the for the justices to kind of hide behind what what they're actually, what their positions actually are. So you might wonder, well, why are so many more cases going on the court shadow docket? This seems like a new tactic. And it seems that the there has been a shift because of a signal that uh, Chief Justice Roberts made in an influential in Chambers' opinion in 2012. And that's uh, important because a lot of times Justice Roberts is touted out even by the left as being this moderating institutionalist who really cares about the court and that it's respected and that there's precedent and all this stuff, which honestly... He's just smarter than Alito or the ones who are just willing to just blatantly say, well, we have the power, so we're going to wield it. Roberts gives them cover and deniability. And, and you know, I don't know what's in his head. Maybe, you know, I, I don't really care what's in his head for this is one of this is one instance where his whether he actually <laughs> cares about procedure or not isn't super important to me um, because he sends these signals out. He just kind of He plays a long game and saying, you know, I'm amenable to this. I just, you know, just give it to me in this particular way and you'll get what you want. So in this instance, he ruled in this 2012 opinion that the government suffers irreparable harm weighing in favor of relief whenever its policies are enjoined and without regard to the balancing of the equities. So. You know, we don't have to balance. It's, it's it's a lot of legal jargon. I don't I don't know that anybody's super interested in that. But basically, it's like, hey, if we're a Republican government if we're a Republican court, I'm giving you the clue here that we're probably going to be in alignment on this, and this would be a good way for you to go. So now that we aren't going to have a Republican uh, executive. Who is the ones that were pushing the majority? You know, a lot of these. I think you're going to see less cases being sought to go on the shadow docket. And it'll be interesting to see whether that is used still by the Republican donor litigants. So I think that's something to, to keep an eye on. Now, the shadow docket can have a very strong tactical benefit because it can give one side a super decisive victory, especially when the time is short. And if the litigation proceeded all the way to the final merits, it could take a long time. And the Supreme Court's ruling on the census count is a great example of that. So the Supreme Court shadow docket essentially stopped the the census from being completed. It made a ruling that said, well, you know, this litigation is going to continue, but there's an end date to the census. So there isn't time for it, for the litigation to continue. So by issuing this order, stopping, um, the count, the census is going to end there. And there's really not much that can be done to start it over. Now, this, this is a, this is a big deal. This harms a lot of people. It most likely is going to lead to undercounting, uh, to areas that uh, and areas can receive less funding if they don't have uh, the appropriate counting. There can be less re- uh, representation when a reapportionment is determined for congressional districts. And this is a harm that's going to last for 10 years until the next census comes around. So, you know, I think that, uh, you know, you see this uptick in Trump using the shadow docket because Roberts gave that signal. Um, And, and that's important to know when people, you hear people say, oh, Roberts is this moderating influence. No, just, just think to yourself, what, what long game could he be playing here instead of trusting him? I, I really would encourage people not to just trust John Roberts. So anyway, that's the shadow docket. And that kind of brings me to, um, step away exactly from what's in front of the court and to look more at the makeup of the Supreme Court. You know, we're stuck with this 6-3 uh, right wing, really way out of base, ideologically way out of base from uh, the rest of the country court. And it's deeply concerning to, you know, those of the, to, you know, me and to, and to, Really, anybody who's progressive or even moderates should be really concerned about this. Uh, you know, the ACA, Roe v. Wade; these are not policies that are just on the fringe. I mean, the majority of Americans support these, and we are uh, facing a situation where we really need to rebalance the courts to to add seats to the district courts, to the circuit courts, and then to the Supreme Court in order to counteract what the court packing that has been done by Mitch McConnell and the Republicans uh, in order to, you know, have, you know, liberals, progressives, even average Americans have their justices represent their views. We need to add more seats and confirm judges, you know, that aren't part of the federal society in order to do that. That is not going to happen. If, The Democrats don't take the Senate. So the Senate uh, confirms um, justices and they also, you know, they also put forward legislation. So if we don't take the Senate, then. Joe Biden is going to have to do most of his uh, most of his enacting of policies through executive orders. Um, Mitch McConnell has signaled that he is going to be to continue his total obstructionist uh, pattern, which is not bring not putting forward legislation, trying to dictate who Joe Biden puts on his cabinet by blocking who he doesn't like and saying basically saying you need our votes, so uh, we're going to have to put in people that we that we want, and you know it makes sense because. Mitch McConnell, he he wants to show that a Biden presidency is ineffective. And so he can say it's ineffective by blocking all legislation, by blocking any type, you know, by doing another Merrick Garland and, and refusing to seat any of uh, Biden's judicial appointments, just saying no, basically abdicating any Senate advice and consent um, for judicial nominations, and again, how many bills have died are dying, or sitting on McConnell's desk right now that have been passed by the House? I mean, it's it's absolutely crucial that for any type of functional government that Democrats get the Senate, because I think if we don't, then in twenty, you know, in four years, they can Republicans can say to Democrats didn't do anything. Meanwhile, they're the ones who blocked everything being done. And they're also, sorry, I forgot to say, uh, probably going to completely decimate the Voting Rights Act. And we did not win the state legislatures in these Republican states. So gerrymandering and, you know, which is, of course, drawing districts around not choosing the voters, uh, I'm sorry, by choosing the voters, to be packed into specific geographical areas and that's used to have politicians pick their voters. So you have, you concentrate democratic um, voters in certain areas and then you, or you spread them out in a way so that they don't actually, um, aren't able to affect the the final uh, vote because there aren't enough of them. So there are two different ways to kind of use gerrymandering. So we didn't win the state legislature, so we're not going to be able. to Democrats are not going to be able to help draw the maps um, that are going to come after this this 2020 census. It's a big deal, so that's that's a huge problem, and it's not a pro, None of these problems can be solved unless we get the Senate. So, whatever you can do to help um, John Ossoff and Reverend Warnock uh, in Georgia. Do it, because this one's for all the marbles, and you know that the big-money Republican donors are completely aware that this is it. They don't really need Trump. They don't need him at all if they have the Senate and the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. So while this Biden victory is great, and it's not that he can't do anything, any type of reform or or shoring up of democracy, expanding voting, rebalancing the courts, uh, passing Uh, legislation like a Green New Deal or expanding health care, or even if they strike down, if the Supreme Court strikes down the ACA and gets rid of the ACA and McConnell doesn't put put a bill up that would replace anything like that.
0: Where are we? Yeah. Yeah. And so and this is what's crazy, too. It's like even most Republicans over the last four years most, I should say, most like kind of like uh, like uh, like uh, you know like plebeian like like the masses, conservative masses, right? Not the power players, but have like decided ACA is probably a good thing. Like now that kind of all the the just the like insane Obamacare discourse has died down. Generally speaking, pe- the the polling is that people believe they're better off without it, and yet. So now, what we're really seeing is that this was never about what they thought was good for America. This was always about what was good for corporations.
1: I think you meant that most people think that they're better off with
0: with it. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. That the polling is showing most people have come around to ACA as being like a a bet a net a a net benefit, even conservatives who wanted it repealed ten years ago.
1: Right, because you know people get sick and they're like, "Hey, it's way better to have health care."
0: Yeah. Or, or COVID happens, and you have a president who doesn't create relief packages. So if you don't have Medicare, you can't get help. <laughs> right, right. So yeah, yeah and it, yeah, I think the lie, the
1: lie has come, has been exposed. I don't, I don't know if they even necessarily realize it, but you know, they, they, it's the ACA is extremely popular.
0: Yeah. So what you're really seeing now is all of this thing about how you know people want it. It's you know it's popular. It's like no, it's not. Now you want to take away something. That people generally approve of, well, what could be your reasoning? Oh, it must be big money. So, right, so like they're starting to really, I think, show the roots, at least on this issue, of how much corporate interests drive their decision making.
1: Yeah, and and you know, it's we can't even have discussions at all about you know about about reforms and and you know, at the end of the day, reforms are super important, but we are facing a climate crisis that doesn't. it's not going to wait. Right. Yeah. And that's what's really scary is that we just don't have time for this. We don't have time to not win the Senate Mm -hmm. in six weeks.
0: Yeah. And then, of course, the Senate then becomes kind of the real big turning point or the keystone piece about whether or not, you know, the big conversation about whether or not Biden, if he's so so willing, can rebalance the court so that we don't have a 6-3 Supreme Court for the next 40 years. So where are you with that? Yeah, so assuming God willing
1: that uh, we do take the Senate and have the option to uh, look at court reforms, which are desperately needed, um, I am absolutely for expanding the courts and rebalancing the courts, and you know this whole this whole kind of notion of Packing the courts—that it's a bad thing—and you're hearing this coming from the Federalist Society mouthpieces. They're saying, "Oh, we can't we can't pack the courts. Dems want to pack the courts." It's like, you know, we have to push back at that narrative because they have packed the courts. They did it. They blocked. Uh, Obama uh, filling vacancies so that there would be this huge number of vacancies. Then they filled them. They, they that That's basically all McConnell has done in the Trump presidency, is jam these justices through. So to turn around and try to you know flip the narrative on its head and say that Dems are now the ones who want to pack the courts and this is a terrible thing, we have to push back against that because it's garbage. It's complete garbage, and we can't allow them that to go unchecked. You know, so, you know... When you hear it in, in amongst, you know, your relatives and your neighbors, please push back. The courts have been packed. They've been packed by Republican donors and, you know, we need to expand them. Now, we need to expand the federal courts anyway. There has been a growth in population. There is a huge backlog of cases in federal courts. Uh, you know, it's but they have been expanded, you know, throughout the history of this country as populations have grown. So this isn't this isn't like a radical notion. Not that I'm against radical things. Um, you know, if it's better for democracy, better for fairness, fine. You know. If who cares if it's a radical idea? But this isn't. This is not a radical idea. This is just good governance and necessary in order to um, get caseloads down to manageable levels. So we should be adding district and circuit courts. We probably should add a whole whole new um, circuit or a few circuits in order to deal with the the number of cases. And on the Supreme Court, absolutely, we need to uh, rebalance the court and add justices uh, to uh, counteract the extreme the extreme right justices on the court. I mean, if you look at the uh, number of Republican presidents they you know that have that have put justices on the court, like it's ridiculous and they represent a, a much smaller portion of, Americans, and that's just—that's just not democracy. The court has a huge amount of power, and it should not be something that is comprised of only uh, minority chosen leaders. That—that's you know, meaning leaders that have been chosen by a minority of the voters. So I think that it's crucial that we rebalance the courts by adding justices at the federal level.
0: All right, except so so Biden has said that he doesn't want to I mean not recently but um when people first started talking about this like last year or whatever that when it became like kind of like clear that the writing was on the wall with with Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and then of course then it hit like overdrive recently but Biden has been quiet about it presumably because he didn't want to make it an election issue but if the he doesn't want the court expanded because he thinks another round of expansion would lose credibility and so Um, he has said that he's going to establish a bipartisan group to examine the need for Supreme court reforms, but that's a lukewarm, like it's not even a commitment, right? It's just like, okay, thanks for nothing. So what about limited term appointments, right? So like, why couldn't you say, you know, they're 18 or 25 or whatever staggered term limits, give each president the chance to nominate two justices over the course of a four year term, um, three representatives in the house introduced this legisl- uh, legislation last fall that would have set term limits. The goal, according to Representative Don Beyer, who was one of the bill sponsors, would be to, quote, eliminate the arbitrary nature of Supreme Court vacancies by creating a regular fair process that doesn't reshape the court for decades at a time. And so then following their term, justices could still serve on lower courts. So wh- why-, why go the expansion route and not the term limits? Well, a couple reasons. Um, there from
1: a, from a, from an ideological standpoint, it's too little too late. You know, maybe you could have, maybe you could have tried for something like, uh, like term limits, um, you know, 10, 15 years ago. But if you do term limits now, what do we, what do we say? 16, uh, cases to try to t- overturn Roe v. Wade are in the pipeline. So what we were just going to, all these, you know, for 18 years, we're just going to, you know, get, we're just going to be under the, the, this, kind of theocratic semi-corporate fascist court and we're just cool with that i you know i don't i don't think that's uh i don't think that's Oh, see
0: in my brain in my brain the 18 whatever whatever number of years it is is effective immediately which which even if they're really generous still gets at least thomas out because he's been there what like
1: oh no 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 no. that's not what nobody's proposing that it would be starting so you don't so okay it'd
0: be starting now yeah I see. Okay.
1: Uh, You know, but there's constitutional problems with term limits anyway. So the Constitution says that you serve, you know, these federal judges serve as long as they're in good behavior. So that's interpreted to mean that they have essentially lifetime appointments unless they can be impeached for some reason. So I think that there's real constitutional issues as to whether or not, you know, they would... uh, term limits would survive court scrutiny i mean i also wonder do i mean so these cases come before court come before the supreme court to rule on whether they want to
0: limit their own power i think that's highly unlikely um and well that's what i'm worried about if it has to go to the supreme court anyway why the hell would the six people in the majority right now ever agree to this yeah i mean that's that's I, I don't see them ever agreeing to it, and it doesn't make. But wouldn't they have to agree with the with the uh, expansion anyway?
1: No, Congress can oh. Congress can set the number of justices because it's not a
0: constitutional, not a constitutional
1: switch. Constitutional. I see. Okay, okay, I guess. And there hasn't there hasn't been uh, a set number of justices. The justice number of justices has been different throughout the the existence of our country. And if you want to be really technical about it, the Republicans by failing, not failing, by refusing to allow Obama to fill um, Merrick Garland and put Merrick Garland on the court, they changed the number of justices on the court to eight. So, you know, if they want to claim that this is something which isn't even a g- genuine claim, but they want to claim that this is some terrible thing that only Democrats are doing, well, they did it themselves. They they used their political power to uh, limit the num- the size of the court.
0: Okay, I'm following. Well, so okay, it's got to be expansion then. <laughs> You're right. It just doesn't sound like there's another choice. Um, well, and that will give us lots to talk about next year as we kind of watch what's happening because. Uh, Yeah, like you said, I mean, the presidency is one, but that's not even I mean, that's the tip of the iceberg on the problem. So coming up next season, there'll be obviously lots of stuff we can't predict. But for sure, we're going to look at plaintiff suits and this attack on the civil jury. Right. Um, And then also the court attack on unions and workers rights. Do you want to say anything more about those? Well,
1: I think those are gonna be really interesting. We focused, um, we haven't focused a ton on civil or economic cases this season. And so I think it's really important to dive into the. Honestly, probably because I find money stuff to be a little uh uncomfortable. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't love that stuff. But I think it's really crucial that we understand because the money is driving this whole process and and it's it's closest to their heart. So I think it's really important to look at these issues. Um, And, you know, we can't do everything in one season. So uh,
0: those, those episodes are already in the works. Yep. And then we're also going to look at, uh, take it international and look at the courts in Hungary and Poland, where there have been sort of similar, though, certainly more extreme takeovers and do some comparative analysis between them and the U S because again, like it might be worse what they're up to, but it, could be our future.
1: Yeah. What's going on, there's a huge, uh, the, the women in Poland are taking to the streets uh, because the Polish, uh, and they did, they redid all of the, they kind of did, like reinstalled our, a whole new slate of judges. And then they essentially banned abortion in uh, in Poland. So there's a lot to look at about what's been going on in Hungary and Poland that I'm excited to look at next season.
0: Yeah, and then we also had uh, we want to talk more about the rhetoric stuff, right? Especially this concept of originalism, textualism, right? These people who like Robert, or um, I don't. Is Robert an originalist? He he must be. Uh, I mean, but certainly, but certainly the three certainly the three new ones are. I mean, Amy Coney Barrett is like I'm, I have originalism, you know, tattooed on my ass. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and to talk about um, originalism is just like everything else, right It's a rhetorical construct. it's made up it has deep roots in dark money academia and it competes with sort of the um, the the concept of the Constitution as a living, Breathing doctrine, and I always tell people like, if you thought that the founding fathers meant for the Constitution to be like literal, you think they would have made the Bill of Rights more than you know eight paragraphs long.
1: Yeah, and and especially <laughs> uh, with a six three court, I think we're going. It's really important to see how they're going to try to shore up uh, their basically raw power moves to support their donors, and I think originalism is going to feature strongly in the words they say.
0: Yeah, and it's important that people understand that it's not a thing. I, I mean, it is a thing, but it's a thing the way that, like, all other made-up things are things. And you can't, like, just because someone says the word originalism to you doesn't mean they've won an argument. If anything, you should be like, really? How can you be original about a document that was meant to govern a country over, you know, 300 years? You're really going to use the seventeen late 1700s interpretation of things? I mean, it's it's a it's a ridiculous assertion, and I feel like people take it as if it's truth, because it's like, oh, well, they said originalism, it must be true. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's a
1: construct. I can't wait to dive into that next season. Yeah. I have a lot of th- I have a lot of thoughts on that, a lot of anger towards my own liberal law school.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. <sighs> so yeah, lots to cover. Um, I thought we were going to get to take a break, but I'm <laughs> worried we probably should get started now. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think we're going to... All right. So while we are prepping for season two and taking a little time off to uh, enjoy our victories, um, we will still be active on Twitter as we prepare for the next season. Remember, at CourtPod. Keep us in your podcast feed or your subscriptions so that you also get teasers and announcements for the upcoming season, which will release sometime mid-late 2021. And we would love to hear from you on Twitter.
1: And you can email us also at displeasethecourt at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts on the season, any ideas you have for episodes for next season. Actually, one episode did come from a listener, so that's very exciting. Uh, We take your comments to heart, so please drop us a review. And once again, we want to really extend our appreciation to all of you who have taken the time to listen and to share. As an attorney, I swore an oath to protect and defend the Constitution. I take that seriously. It's been extremely difficult to watch uh, our Constitution and our norms get shredded these past four years. So it has been, uh, that's It's that impulse, you know, that that led me to talk to Lee and say, hey, I think we could let's talk about this. You know, I don't maybe maybe it's not going to mean anything, but it's our voice Then they're not they can't stop us. So let's use it. And I want to thank all of the citizens who feel the same way. We appreciate your engagement. I'm thrilled that we have had this major victory this past week um, with the election of Joe Biden and and, uh, Vice President Harris. And it took every single one of us to get to this point. Thank you.
0: Yes. And a special shout out to Joe Cliff Thompson, our producer, audio manager, guru, mas- uh, sound master guy. Yes. Thank you, Joe. Yes. All right, everyone. In the words of Tigger, TTFN, ta-ta for now. Take care of yourselves, and we'll see you back soon for season two of May It Displease the Court. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to source material referenced in this episode, because unlike corrupt judges and politicians, we do our research. Listen,
1: subscribe, tell a friend, and be sure to judge us by rating and reviewing. Post-production by Joe Thompson and theme music by Avery Munger.